don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 14. I got the number right this time. It's like an elevator where you skip... You we skip, we skip the unlucky one and just stayed at 12. Uh, but today we're talking about, or we're doing our second Anthropocene auteur theory. This time it's a little bit more truncated. We're not doing 53 movies or however many we did with uh, Clint Eastwood. Not, not a single threesome in these movies either. I know. I was, I was also disappointed. <laughs> uh, but today we're talking about a couple of movies by the Korean director Bong Joon-ho. Bong Joon uh, Snowpiercer from 2013 and Okja from 2017. Um and do, you, do you know if Snowpiercer got a theatrical release? It it was kind of strange because it's a joint South Korean and Czech Republic production, and it was shot in the Czech Republic. Okay. So it's kind of, uh, even though it's shot in English and it's his first movie that he shot mostly in English, uh, it and wasn't really With, with recognizably movie. English actors, too. Yeah. That's why I was, I was uh, curious, because I don't remember it coming out, but, it, you know, it's got Captain America... Yeah, yeah, and it did. Uh, from what I read online, it doubled its budget, so which is pretty good. But it made yeah. most of its money in Korea and China, um, and then you know it, it had some moderate success in in the states. People it, have heard of it. It's it'll be yeah it'll it'll develop a sort of cult if it if it hasn't already because it's it's extremely well made. It is, and both of these films have really good and also really kind of interesting casts a, a weird mix of of actors eclectic, going eclectic yeah yeah it's weird to see uh um chris evans and john hurt in the same film tilda swinton tilda swinton yeah th- it was interesting but um bong joon ho we picked a good time to talk about him because he just won the the palm door at can uh con cans canis however you want to say it cannies cannies uh, so he just won the Palme d'Or um, for his film Parasite, which is his newest one, which is back to being in Korean. So um, I'll make sure to watch that whenever I get a chance to. But he's really well-known uh, in Korea. He gained a lot of uh, sort of international notoriety for his film The Host, which I have not seen. But I didn't I didn't know that was him. Yeah, that's one you always hear about. Yeah, the kind of a monster film, yeah. but a, a kind of new age, really well thought out monster film um, so after that he was when he sort of started making these bigger uh, more internationally uh, aimed movies like Snowpiercer and Ocha Snowpiercer based on a, a French graphic novel which is a little strange as well because mm. as far as I know it wasn't that successful <laughs> but yeah. he made it into this film that became like you're saying is probably this gonna end up being this kind of cult Classic thing. It kind of weirdly, it kind of reminded me of not not in its themes or anything, but just in its sort of commercial position of a movie called Dark City, which, oh, yeah. which was kind of like the Ma- not the Matrix, but uh, I guess it was kind of like the Matrix, but like a few years before, right? Uh, or around the same time? Yeah, yeah, I think it was like '98 or so, uh, where it's like extremely well made, and but but the cast is just one tier down and it just didn't quite get there I mean I, not that's not to denigrate Snowpiercer but it's just 
it, it, it's like a, a, a legitimate Hollywood production that did not get the notoriety of a of a legitimate Hollywood production. Yeah, um, it's it, it's one of those films that if you I say I it, say Hollywood not in who produced it, but in the scale of production. Yeah, like a you know blockbuster, you go see it on a Friday night right, kind of right. thing. Um, but I will say if you if you just sort of see it in passing. It looks like one of those weird foreign films that an actor will make to, to get a paycheck that's not re- very good. You see Chris Evans, you're like, oh, he cashed in, and that was kind of yeah. all that movie's good for. But there's a lot going on like in the, the film. What was that one? The Snowman? The, yeah, The Snowman like the with Fox Bender. the worst fucking movie I've ever seen. Yeah, and it's supposed to. It's based on this really successful novel It's, it's certainly... And what, the director had made something awesome right before that. And it, it, that's like... That's probably the worst movie I've seen that had like legitimate actors in it in the last in the last two years for sure. There's a if you're interested in other podcasts, why would you be? Ours is perfect. But right. there's a great episode of how did this get made about the snowman and how they apparently didn't shoot a lot of the script or they shot it and didn't use it and they had to do these weird rewrites and reshoots and mm. they they had the debate which I'm I find kind of interesting which is. Michael Fassbender is right on the verge of becoming a bad actor because he's been in so many kind of shit movies recently. Assassin's Creed. Yeah. He's kind of, he's, he's pushing his luck a little bit yeah. with some of these roles. Um, but yeah, with, with this movie, it, it sort of seems like this, you know, action schlock film that was kind of thrown together. Um, but then you look at, you know, Bong's sort of directorial pedigree and you look at the kinds of things he's saying in this film, and also just a lot of the the way that the shots are framed and put together is very kind of masterful, and it's it's a lot of fun to watch. Absolutely, that is that is the first thing I notice is just how just I mean I kept saying the word badass as I watched. It's just <laughs> like um, you might feel a little guilty at how entertaining it is watching it. Yeah, uh, and and there's like. Hollywood conventions it's just like slow motion action sequences violent action sequences with with uh, you know heavy soundtrack it's just sort of unapologetically uh, artificial and and stylized and but it's re- it's so cool um, it, it's it, I thought this when I saw it the first time and I've seen some other people call it this but it, it's almost like a video game I said that. Jensen and I were watching and I said this is like a, each uh, car in the train is like a new level yeah yeah. until you get to like the final boss and you have the right. the showdown King Cooper is it Koopa or Koopa, Koopa? Hanging King with Cooper Mr. hanging with King Koopa <laughs> King Chris Cooper um, <laughs> foreshadowing almost gave it away um, but <laughs> yeah so it is like kind of like a video game and I've seen a lot of people talking about how the the way it's shot is the whole point of the film is to keep moving forward mm-hmm. and it's sort of this side scroller video game where you go right to move forward and left is backward and that's bad and yeah it's like uh, uh, it makes me think because of the train I used to play a game called Turtles and Times the Ninja Turtles yeah. and there was one level on a train yeah we were moving through the cars hell yeah that game um, that game was awesome yeah indisputable but yeah, the, so you have the film, and it, it has a lot of really heavy action. It has a lot of heavy violence, 
um, that kind of comes out of nowhere sometimes. Here's, I was going to say, what's so cool about the sort of unabashed badassery of the film is that it's always in service of the themes. And so, and so when, when there is slow motion, you know, hardcore violence with a, with a song playing over it or whatever, and you just see blood slow motion spewing, like it's, you know, Mel Gibson and the Patriot or whatever. Uh, it's always, it's always. It seems for you to really think about what this violence represents. It slows down so you will think about what's happening, um, which is which is essentially class struggle, is what's happening, um, and so and so. I think you can sort of justify it when those conventions, those sty- the stylistic things, are used in thoughtful ways. I mean, it's it's just categorically entertaining and cool and and it isn't in a way manipulative in that it it is forcing you to have a particular reaction to it but it's doing it in a, in a thoughtful way yeah and one part of the film that that helps it accomplish that goal is that it has this completely ridiculous premise um, and like a lot of things in the film it, a lot of things in the film are kind of over the top ridiculous. Oh, the whole the premise is, is yeah. ridiculous. Um, yeah, and then like individual events themselves, but it really helps push toward that goal. You know, I keep going back to um, Children of Men as this kind of really towering accomplishment of this this world building because I really like what Crone does in that film, um, and this is kind of similar in effectiveness, but very different in kind of the scope and the way that it's done mm-hmm. because you just get the little kind of snippets at the beginning of like they tried this chemical and it backfired and the world froze and now everyone's on this train they never explain to you like how that decision was made or right why that would be the best choice or whatever and, and that doesn't matter because that's you know that's not what the movie's about yeah that because that's not because it's all a metaphor point. anyway right? yeah. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know and it's a very clear um ham-fisted in all the best kind of ways metaphor for uh social economic stratification which is something that you know we talk about in the real world all the time with you know Bernie Sanders and, and other people other um, kind of left leaning uh, politicians talking about economic inequality and all that kind of stuff well in Snowpiercer it's all that you know cranked up to 11 mm-hmm. um, and on a train <laughs> um, yeah it's is, so it's so cool because like I said I'd never seen this before and I was watching it with Jensi, who had seen it before, and I said, it's going to be, at the beginning, it's kind of hard to imagine. The only world you see is the world of the lower class for the first 30 minutes or something. Uh, and I said, man, it's going to be so weird if there's, like, people sipping champagne at the front of this <laughs> train. And you it's, know. it's so And, of course, it, 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 yeah, it's so much worse than that. That final sort of reveal was genuinely uh, effective where uh, when uh, Ed Harris perfectly yeah. uh, that one thing I do want to talk about is casting yeah. uh, in in both these movies I think it's I think it's very well done uh, but Ed Harris uh, as the as the man Wilford Wilford yeah um, when he lifts up the floor and you see that kid the kids under there it's 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 
it's powerful. It's I mean it's ridiculous and over the top, but you've spent two hours sort of accepting this world, and so it makes within the world it makes a lot of sense, and and it is powerful within that world that's been built. Yeah, and the way it's it, earlier in the film, there's a piece of foreshadowing or a character. It's when they. Um, it's when Chris Evans' character Curtis finds out that the protein blocks are made out of bugs mm-hmm. um, which we can come back to because I don't think it's as gross as the movie makes it seem I felt <laughs> the same way uh, but it's the, interesting you say that Cause, because again I was watching the Vincenzi and she was just like oh gross you know and I'm just like no, that's, yeah I mean it's it's, it's effective <laughs> yeah. it's efficient but the, that character that is in charge of making them or whatever is um, trying to turn like a big kind of steampunk thing on a pipe and he's like, oh, it used to be done automatically, but, you know, parts went obsolete or parts went extinct. And then yeah. at the end, that's what the kids are doing is they're replacing these machine parts that no longer exist mm-hmm. that you can't remake because everyone right. lives on a train. Um, so, and yeah, that final reveal is it, it could, and it still sort of is sort of a little, I don't know, it's based on a graphic novel. It's a little kind of comic booky of like how quickly it happens and it's so sort of yeah. so far you know beyond the pale of like how could you do this to these children yeah. but, but, but it again, works yeah and, and realism is out the door just yeah. the very second the movie starts and you understand the premise yeah um, it's like the it, difference between mother being an allegory for something and this film being kind of an allegory like they're they're on opposite ends of the spectrum but they're kind of doing the same right. sort of thing right yeah so it seems it seems like a lot of criticism when you're young. It, it's like when you're when you're a teenager and you start getting into film or whatever. It's your it's an instinct to critique it based on like true to lifeness, you know, verisimilitude yeah. to life. But I think any any sort of mature criticism, you know, you have to take a take a movie. You kind of have to understand the context and. And understand the movie's goals and genre conventions and things like that before you can say like, "Oh, this isn't plausible, therefore it's bad." You know, mm-hmm. uh, and and I I can just imagine like seventeen year old me watching Snowpiercer and be like, "That would never happen," you know, <laughs> this sucks. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, and that's just missing the point. Exactly. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna turn a blind eye to a lot of things worth watching I think if that is your uh, criteria <clears throat> and so you, this film I, I guess we can talk about the casting a little bit before we get uh, into some other parts of the film so Chris Evans is Curtis is pretty it's fine right he's Captain America everyone kind of <laughs> knows him that's that is Chris Evans's career summed up in a wor- like two words it's fine yeah, he was in not another teen movie. Remember that? Oh yeah, that, that was to to my mind. That's the world's introduction to yeah. uh, Chris Evans. But you know, he's, it's a he's banana good. split. <laughs> so he, he's good in this movie as Curtis is kind of like brooding, reluctant leader with a dark past kind mm-hmm. of character that he is. Yeah, John Hurt was Gilliam, sort of the old wisely yeah and and one of the first things you notice in terms I feel like it's it's an extremely uh, American movie or just movie in general literate film um, Bong seems to be extremely uh, aware of his context um, 
in releasing American films. He knows what his audience is familiar with. Uh, but but John Hurt's casting, of course, John Hurt's uh, Winston in 1984, uh, and, and there's definitely some totalitarian. He's also in Melancholia. For also, in, yeah, yeah, uh, a lot of totalitarian stuff going on in uh, in Snowpiercer for sure. Yeah, and then uh, Tilda Swinton, who is in both of these films, playing these. Utterly ridiculous, but awesome characters. The uh, yeah, and she's always like the sort of status quo or the one percent kind of ideology dispenser. Yeah, um, the face. The first thing, one of the first observations I remember having about Snowpiercer was like, oh. They dress Tilda Swinton up like Ayn Rand. You know, she looks yeah. exactly like the, Ayn the, Rand, the, and she's the spouting fake teeth bullshit that she's got in the glasses. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, the and, and the bullshit she's spouting is very Randian uh, <laughs> about knowing your place and the sort of naturalization of free market, uh, free market ideology. Just uh, everything about her character is summed up in the the classroom scene where she grabs the gun and goes to shoot Chris Evans and he sort of like kicks it away from her and she goes, it wasn't me. <laughs> so, yeah, she, she's just kind of, in both movies, a sort of despicable character in, in different kinds of ways. Yeah, And then, you know, um, you have some smaller parts. So, like, Octavia Spencer is in this film yeah. as sort of a side character, yeah. surprisingly enough. Uh, Jamie Bell is in it. He's not a big deal, but he's there. Yeah, I, I didn't know about Jamie Bell. Apparently, Jensie's got a, a thing for him. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, so <laughs> he's a he's a handsome young British guy. Makes sense. Let's. Uh, what part of this do you want to talk about? Like, what what car train car do you want to focus on? Uh, well, if we're gonna if we're gonna start with casting a little bit, that's all I think. I think that's all I was going to say is John Hurt is a shout-out. Tilda Swinton looks like Ayn Rand. Um, <laughs> sort of like in unintentional intertextuality with Chris oh, Evans being Captain America in yeah, this film. That, uh, so uh, Ed Harris, I feel like, I don't know how prominent the Truman Show is in the national consciousness, oh, yeah. but but him playing the Kristoff role, it, it's weirdly similar it's just like it's just like even darker though in this movie like he's like this sort of overlord of this uh, of this train and then it's it's like you know Chris Evans is sort of the everyman but you know hero everyman the true man the true man getting this the, the, the grand finale is this like finally you get to see the everyman confront this person in power uh which I felt like, you know, is very similar to the Truman Show. Uh, and so, in my mind, that's, it's a shout-out to, to that and all the implications of that, uh, which, if you watch the Truman Show in a religious, as a religious allegory, it's extremely powerful, and I recommend everyone watch it that way. Uh, <laughs> well, in this film, too, where he, you know, he's playing Wilford, and Wilford is kind of worshipped as this savior of all humanity. Right, and you see in the in the uh, classroom car yeah. that all you know these kids are being indoctrinated to to sort of worship him uh, and mythologize him and all, all that stuff. So uh, yeah. 
he is kind of a version of God in a way. Uh, yeah. If 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 the train is the world, then he's and, and this sort of mechanistic understanding of the world, which I think is sort of represented by the train, yeah. uh, or the train represents, then then in that metaphor of the world as mechanism, the con- conductor or train. I don't know what it, what's engineer, his engineer. Yeah, I guess engineer would be a good metaphor in a mechanistic world for God. Yeah, and also the uh, this is the second time we're seeing Ed Harris as well since he was in Mother. Oh yeah, um, it, we're gonna have to do like uh, you know, there's that six degrees of Kevin Bacon or yeah, whatever. Do that a, with six degrees of Anthropocene. Yeah. Uh, since we have all these this recurring Gyllenhaal what did we see Jake in Day After Tomorrow Day After Tomorrow yeah yeah. Gyllenhaal <laughs> how could you forget Gyllenhaal I don't know and Ed Harris is also I don't know how he, he he's not completely typecasted but he's gotten a little bit typecasted for like dark sort of sci-fi type role so he's also the man in black in Westworld mm. which is a, a a similar sort of like Dark, brooding, kind of over. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that, character. but but uh, I forgot he was in that. I would recommend that to people who are interested in Ed Harris. He's <laughs> good in that show. Pollock. Pollock's my official Ed Harris recommendation. Yeah, that's that, that's probably a better one than Westworld, but <laughs> they're both good. Um, so we have. Let's talk about that classroom scene a little bit because that's my favorite scene in the whole movie. We have, uh, and I've got a little bit of a thing for Allison Pill. I'm yeah, going to go ahead say, and lay she, it on the table. It's but, been it's ever since I saw In Treatment on HBO. Oh, I've got a thing for. Her. Well, she they did a really good job of making her look like crazy, like a crazy <laughs> 1950s like Stepford wife type look. Yeah, she's like she's like Miss Lippy from Billy Madison on crack. So she, she's the teacher, and they're in this classroom. And and with the part of the movie that makes it all sort of like stick together for me is the fact that they're traveling from car to car with uh, Minister Mason, Tilda Swinton's character, and because they're with her, it's sort of their past to travel through the cars. Mm-hmm. And so when they get to a car, everyone just sort of like lets them leaves them alone and lets them be there, and they get to observe all the crazy shit that's happening around them. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of like when they get to eat the sushi and all that kind of stuff. So they, they're in this classroom, and, and uh, Alison Pill's character, the teacher, is like, we're about to watch a video, and you watch this like weird propaganda movie about about um, Wilford and how he built the train. And ever since he was a little kid, he wanted to build trains and all this stuff. And uh, the best part is how they have like the weird call-and-response stuff mm-hmm. in the film, and they do like... The kids almost dab. I don't know, like what you would call that motion, but they're like, they're like, it'll run forever. <laughs> yes. Um, and then they sing the song where she's playing the organ, and they're like, what happens if the train stops? Right. We all freeze and die. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's just begging to be remixed. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> and it just that scene's so great because it shows, it you know, it's over the top, but it's this kind of idea of education as indoctrination instead of actually being education. Um, so you have these children just being um, shown this propaganda and sort of filled with this idea that you know this is you know we should all be grateful to Wilford for doing this and don't try to shake things up you know this is the world we live in and everything's fine and um, even so like 
toward the end of that scene where they go to the window and they go to see the the seven people that had tried to rebel and they left the train and they froze to death and every year they go past the frozen bodies on the side of the mountain or whatever it's like just a reminder that you know don't act up right you know, don't try anything right it's uh it's interesting how a lot of dystopias are really the basic sort of arc is like they just have to create a character or a scenario to sort of guide you through this version this created version of the world and so the the protagonist is in some way your you as the viewer your tour guide um and the plot is kind of incidental to you seeing this built world and it's usually almost always a very satirical or hyperbolic version of our world and and so when you watch Snowpiercer you see the first one of the first cars is when you see where the bugs are turned into the food it's it's a sort of commentary on agriculture and, or food culture now uh, which there's even more to say about that with Okja yeah. Um, and then we get to the education. Here's the world of education, and it's it's indoctrination essentially um, to ideological goals, and um, you can just see there's no real questioning happening. It is it, the movie paints education as a thing imposed upon children, as opposed to some sort of. Um, you know, creative thing that happens between teacher and student uh, that broadens horizons. This is uh, specifically that that little chant or whatever is about limiting. It's about keeping them in their place. Yeah, I mean, it's quite literally about keeping them inside the train. Uh, makes me think, don't like think outside the box. They're like specifically not thinking out of the box car. Yeah, you know. Uh, but yeah, so very uh, kind of heavy-handed condemnation of kind of what passes for education now. Yeah, and so that scene quickly devolves into just hyper-violence. <laughs> the, there's all these like close-ups on her, on Allison Pill's, like the teacher's face, and she's just got this sort of wild, distant stare. She just looks... Crazed, yeah. and then yeah, it just turns into like a bloodbath. Yeah, that in the eggs, sort of like weird imagery of rolling yeah. in all the eggs. Yeah, it's like these are warmed by the water, heated by the, the and they blessed keep, machine. They keep cracking them on people's oh, heads. Yeah, it's a very weird sort of, uh, you know, all sorts of symbolic stuff with like the eggs and the children, and she's pregnant. It was all sort of like reproduction yeah. both in the sense of like biological reproduction but also reproduction of knowledge this sort of uh-huh. thing going on reproduction yeah. of ideology and then she pulls an Uzi out from under the eggs and just starts smoking people um, until one of um, Curtis's uh, sort of compatriots throws a knife into her neck and <laughs> it's just sort of and then he that's when he uh, kills Tilda Swinton's character Tilda Swinton's character finally at that point yeah um, and it's just it happens very quickly <laughs> it's very like whoa what the hell right um, like a lot of the the sort of fight scenes in the, in the movie and it's just 
I don't know, that, that scene just stuck out to me because it's so much, there's so much explained in that little, like, 10 or 15 minutes. Right. Um, yeah. Regarding both the world of the train and then also sort of all these different characters' uh, relationship to it where you have all the people in the middle, the kind of middle class of the train that are very much comfortable and don't want to, you know, they want to maintain the status quo kind of at all costs because it's working for them. And then you have the people at the back of the train that look around and think these people are insane. This is crazy. How can anyone live like this? Well, and they only they only think that with because of exposure to things better or, or previous knowledge of you know what what's normal. Yeah. Or when they are when they get exposed to you know other the the better ways that. Uh, the upper class are living. Yeah, and you know it's sort of symbolizing that the the back cars don't have windows. Mm-hmm. It's dark, it's dirty, like ever. What you're very much contained. It's sort of like the uh, the bowels of the ship in Titanic, where all like the Irish are staying, right? Um, except you know, uh, really blown out of proportion and, and made really well, that, sort of. That, I mean that that move Titanic is another sort of heavy handed class critique yeah. uh, made by an extremely wealthy uh, man <laughs> who's obsessed with the ocean right. um, the ocean floor um, and cataloging and exploring it with high dollar high tech machinery yeah for the for the poor people for the poor people uh, anyway James Cameron we'll have to we'll, we'll come yeah, back to Avatar at some point whenever we have the the energy yeah. to deal with it. Um, but another scene that kind of foreshadows what's coming in the film is the, the sushi scene. And I, and I love that because Tilda Swinton's character is like, do you guys want some sushi? And Octavia Spencer's like, hell yeah, line that shit up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're just eating sushi in this like train car that's all one big aquarium. Yeah. And it's the first time, you can tell it's the first time uh, either ever or in a long time that any of the people from the back of the train have seen anything like this that have seen fish mm-hmm. until the Swinton uh, our character is kind of explaining like we only serve this twice a year like oh why is it you know why why would you do that is it difficult to make and she's like balance we have to maintain the perfect balance in this ecosystem mm. maybe the coolest just uh, with no relation to any sort of intellectual issue, the coolest part is when Chris Evans puts the guard's gun to his head, yeah. pulls the trigger, nothing happens, and he says, or Jamie Bell's character then screams, they've got no bullets, and all hell breaks loose. But just the way that's filmed is just, like, so cool. Yeah, because it's very much like a sort of hyperkinetic but yeah. slow at the same time. Well, yeah, it's like real quick cuts. Um, yeah, it's just the, the the rhythm of it is very very satisfying for some reason. Yeah, and that just that even that being kind of metaphorical of what they're using to oppress you actually doesn't do anything. Like it's right. it's just because you believe that it is right. going to cause you harm. Right. You believe in its power. The that's theater the thing. Of it, yeah. Um, and then you know later on it's revealed that they do still have bullets. Mm-hmm. They just save them for didn't, they didn't think they had to use them yeah um, but yeah that that is such a great scene and, and sort of to do my 
Zizekian reading of it, you know, that's when, when Curtis kind of realizes that this, you know, ideology is, is kind of hollow, right? And he's the one that's willing to, you know, do this big symbolic act of putting the gun to his forehead and pulling the trigger to show everyone that, you know, this has no power. Like, mm-hmm. we can we can rebel against this. Yeah, you think of, like, the worst case scenario... Is he dies. Is Well, no, it's it's probably a real source of fear in their life is having that gun barrel up against their head and the trigger being pulled. And here's a scene that totally discredits that, and it's just... I, I just love how immediately... Everyone's chaos like, erupts. Fuck shit up! <laughs> yes. I wish that Tyler the Creator song would have started playing. Uh, what's the one we put on on the end of one episode? Um, I can never remember. The I'm gonna I'm gonna fuck it up again, like I did at the end of the episode. Uh, Kill people, burn, burn shit, fuck, fuck school. school. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if that song had started, I think I like in that scene. If that song had started playing, I'd have like gotten up and like taken my shirt off or something. <laughs> I would have been too hyped. <laughs> You don't know how you're going to burn a fucking car. <laughs> um, it's like the Lakers just want smash a 40 on the ground. <laughs> fucking do it. Um, but yeah, that is a, it's a great sort of, and that's what kicks off this rebellion. And that's another thing that the, the movie does that I think is really interesting is um, talking about the, the possibility or the, the impossibility of rebellion as I wrote it on the whiteboard here. Oh yeah. Um, where we get to the end of the film and Wilford, you know, Ed Harris is, is talking to, to Curtis and explaining the same kinds of things that Tilda Swinton's character was talking about earlier. We have to maintain a balance and we can't have too many people and all this sort of stuff. Uh, so every now and then we have to let the people blow off some steam. So he talks about the rebellions, uh, the past and all this sort of stuff. And he's like, and now we have Curtis's revolution uh, and it sort of revealed that this whole thing was planned to sort of allow him to, to lead this kind of revolution mm-hmm. uh, so that they could then kill a bunch of the people from the back of the train to, to maintain this kind of balance. And it's it's a really disheartening... It sort of t- takes the all the air out of this rebellion that's been happening up until now. Where it's like, oh, this was all planned and you're all kind of doing what was expected. You know, it's a weirdly similar sort of message as a film where we've talked about doing and we'll eventually get to uh, Promised Land where you sort of realize at the end that the counter-cultural character is... is, uh, or the, the... sort of strides that Matt Damon's character has made have all been sort of he's just sort of been a puppet and he didn't know it yeah. um, he's been manipulated in ways he couldn't see before the same way Chris Evans' character has yeah and it's, it's really because like you were saying earlier uh, Curtis's are in for the story like he's the way that we get into the story he's our focus character we're meant to sort of identify with him a little bit because mm-hmm. he's you know, he's flawed, he doesn't really want to be the leader, but he's kind of yeah. thrust into the position. Well, it's, a, it's a sort of old screenwriting rule that uh, whoever you want the audience to identify with, you have them do something easily identifiable as like moral within the first like 10 minutes of the movie. Um, and you see right off the bat Chris Evans being nice to the kids. 
Yeah. You know, he's sort of like, like oh, he's a good guy. He's sort of playful with them, you know, yeah. and clearly they look up to him and they like him and he's nice to them and something with the with the food. I can't remember exactly what what's yeah. going on, but but yeah, within the first ten minutes, you know, he's he's your guy because he's the nice guy and and also I'm nice and so what is that? <laughs> I wouldn't want to be the leader, but if I had to be, I could. <laughs> right. Uh, you have the scene where he's talking to the kid and I forget what they what exactly the kid says, but he's like on the whole wide train. It's like yes, in the whole wide train. Right, and that's your first clue. That this is the world. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, you know, you learn that he has this dark past of, you know, at, after they first got on the train, they had to eat some people to survive, and, and he was involved in that. Um, and so that's supposed to be his sort of, like, you know, dark, you know, glooming, glooming, looming past. Gloomy, looming past. Um, and so when we get to the end and we learn that it's his rebellion is, has played out as this sort of giant charade, it's really kind of a, a punch in the gut, right? You're like, oh, I thought we were actually making real change, but turns out we were working for the man the whole time. Right. It's it's maybe a maybe a critique of violent violent rebellion. You know, like in in sacrificing your life, your you're you're sort of doing the work of the oppressor. Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. Or the, you know, kind of that idea that violent rebellion will just reinforce what the oppressor's been saying the whole time. Like, oh, these people are violent, so if you actually rebel, they're like, told you. Right. And that gives them sort of, uh, you know, yeah, a reason of, to respond. You're kind of ratifying kind of, the violent, the paradigm of violence. Yeah. Um, yeah, it... it like everything it makes me think of First Reformed and how he's sort of for most of the movie Toller's kind of within that within the paradigm he's trying to critique or or call attention to you know he's sort of this soldier in this environmental army just like he used to be in the actual military and then that, that final scene is sort of him coming out of that that way of being um, so yeah I, I think uh, Bong really maybe with with that element of the movie is calling into question certain types of rebellion and like we said there's, uh, when we I think in the eco-terror episode we talked about how there has always been and probably will always be the Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King Jr. Split when it comes to reform of any kind. Um, it seems Snowpiercer seems to, for the first hour and forty-five minutes, kind of glory in Malcolm X type. Stick it to the man, you know, directly, and then is maybe maybe that's called into question with that ending. I don't know. Yeah, and. And it's sort of, I don't know, it's sort of strange because the, the whole idea of this rebellion is kind of neutralized at the end, but then there's this final, you know, act of sacrifice where he sticks his arm in the thing and, and pulls the kid out. Well, there's also no problematization of the fact that, you know, the, the supposed drug addict who's saving up his drug as an explosive. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, this violent act of, you know, towards freedom, uh, that's the opposite of problematized. It is glorified. <laughs> yeah. It's like, this guy's a badass for doing that. The same way, from. and we'll get into this more, the same way Paul Dano's character in Oakjaw, I, I kept waiting for the bitch-ass backpedal, and it never came. Where yeah. I kept waiting for them to say, oh, he's too rigidly moralistic, he's too this, he's too that. And you keep you keep thinking it's going to happen, and it never really does. And, and in fact, it's the opposite. It's like, here's someone fighting for a just cause in a just way, yeah. uh, and who's kind of a badass. And you have the the post credit scene. You know, there's a. It's just like it, it's it's not that big of a deal, but it's just uh, Dano and um, Kay, which is Stephen Ewan's character, yeah. Ewan from a uh, Walking Dead. And they're just talking about planning like a new mission that they're going to go on. So yeah, they're still. I miss that. Trucking along. Is it like after the credits? Mid credit or at the end of the credits? Oh, okay. I forget. Um, but yeah, so you have, and that's one thing I want to talk about is I think, I think Snowpiercer, even though Chris Evans is a character that we're meant to identify with and that we're we're following along, to me it seems like it's more the story of. Uh, I think Namgoon is his name, and Yona, his daughter. Um, yeah. It seems like they're kind of, they're on the periphery sort of the whole time, um, and you see him, like, explaining things to her when he, like, puts the, they're walking through the greenhouse car, and he, like, puts the dirt in her hand. He's like, this is what the earth used to be covered in, and uh, when the school children are looking at he, the yeah, frozen he says, corpses. Yeah, he says, this is what's under the snow. Yeah. And he he looks at it and he's like, "You look too." He's like, "You need to see this." Um, and it's this idea of you know he's he's going through all this trouble in hopes that he can you know give his daughter like a different world, a different kind of world. Mm-hmm. And that's part of I think why blowing up the train is presented as a sort of good thing, um, even though it is really violent. And I, I don't know. I guess I guess other people would survive that train crash if they weren't killed by the explosion yeah um, but then where do they go what do they do and you see the you know the bear at the end right and and it's it's way more I think rewarding on a on a symbolic level of again the train is the world and we are trapped in this sort of mechanistic understanding this completely constructed artificial world we need to uh, through through art and activism or activism and art, whatever his character represents, uh, create a an entry or, or an exit from this world into the natural world. Yeah. Uh, a world in which we look to animals, the polar bear at the end, to sort of, in order to survive, uh, we'll have to sort of follow, you know, at the end the character will have to sort of look to the polar bear to see how it's surviving uh, because conditions are so harsh uh, but it's clearly doing just fine and so to me that's what's so uh, powerful about about the ending is uh, is it's a, an attempt to uh, destroy an entire conception of the world the whole wide the whole wide train yeah and so there's this this good kind of to sort of build off that there's this good parallel or I guess opposition drawn between what you know 
what this character sees when he is telling his daughter to look and he's telling her about the dirt and he's saying, you know, there's a world out there that we don't really, that people have forgotten about or that they don't understand. There's this kind of natural world. And then the first time that the people from the back of the car or the back of the train see through the windows at the world on the outside and everything's frozen, they're like, oh, everyone's dead. And it's kind of this disheartening thing. But what they're seeing is they're driving past like a building. It looks almost like a like a shopping mall or something and it's all like all the windows are busted and it's all frozen and all it's this probably thing. that mall the dude died in uh, <laughs> day after day tomorrow, tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but they see it and they're like oh civilization has collapsed right but they're they're missing this deeper point of uh, you know like you're saying living more in tune or, or following you know the the influences of the natural world in order to survive in that environment as opposed to just looking at you know things that have failed in that environment saying well what's the point even trying let's stay on the train forever um so it, it, and it's sort of to read it hyper symbolically this idea of this straight line path of you know consumerism and and status quo and staying the course and how as long as you stay on that track literally in the film in the case of the film then you don't worry about what's on the outside because you can live within this narrowed world that you yourself have sort of squeezed into this one little track. Um, and, it, and it really makes even more poignant the, the end. All of this is kept going by the exploitation of children. And it, it, yeah. you think of like how much of our shit are like, you know, old Navy clothes are sewn yeah. by eight-year-olds wherever you know uh, iPhones put to right right maybe not literal children but young people that are treated well I mean histor- historically, historically children yeah, yeah. Uh, not not as much anymore one hopes um, but yeah this 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 whole way of this whole uh, sort of mechanistic uh, divorced from the natural world world uh, conception is is uh, fueled by exploitation of innocent people. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about um, since you brought up children to bring up this point because I was uh, earlier today listening to an, an episode of a, another podcast, The Dig, which is produced by by Jacobin. It was an interview with Donna Haraway, and they were talking to her about a lot of different things. Um, but one of them was this um, idea she had, and we've talked about this maybe a little bit before from uh, making or staying with the trouble, making kin in the Thulacine mm-hmm. book. And she had the slogan of make kin, not babies, and this whole idea of like you should look for other ways of, of making these, uh, these other kin, right? These other relations that aren't um, genetic. That way, you know, we do, we'll stop. You know the threats of overpopulation, the kind of. But she's talking about overpopulation in a very specific way, and hearing her talk about it in that interview sort of clarified a lot of it for me. Um, where she's saying the the most destructive kind of reproduction is when rich white people have a kid. <laughs> she said it in a more eloquent way, but that was the basic idea: is that when people that right, it's not another mouth to feed; it's another mouth to feed that will consume wildly beyond its yeah its own necessity it's a it's another hummer in the family that that right. kind of thing um and then she you know she 
explains it in a lot more detail. And if you're interested, you can go and listen to that. But she said something that kind of stuck with me, and it, it plays out in our real world, and it's happening a lot in this current moment where she says everyone, or at least a lot of people in the government, are very pro-natal but anti-child in the sense of, you know, this is an argument that comes up a lot with, like, what's happening in Alabama and Georgia and yeah, Missouri yeah. with these abortion laws of, um, you know, they all want to protect the child until it's born and then it's you're on your own, that kind of thing. Right. Um, right. And it plays out with, you know, yeah, like families being separated on the border and, and all that kind of the stuff. The government has all the say in whether or not the child is born and then, and then all of a sudden the ideology switches to say... Um, the government should have no part in raising your child. You know, that's, yeah. that, it's not being, oh, these people are lazy. Is what it is. Yeah, and then extrapolating it out of, you know, trying minors for felonies or whatever when they're 16 or 17, that kind of thing. Um, but th- that just kind of stuck with me, that, that idea of, of uh, children kind of suffering the most, but people not really talking about it as much, mm-hmm. right? Um, and this is, I'm talking about on a worldwide scale, because there are plenty of children in the United States that, you know, suffer due to a lot of policies that people don't think would affect them. Absolutely. Um, and she also talked a lot, and, and this is kind of what I really wanted to talk about, is this idea of overpopulation, because that's a big deal in Snowpiercer, mm-hmm. killing all these people. Um, so so you can maintain some sort of balance, and it's that kind of Malthusian idea that people harp on a lot of, you know, there's just too many people. We have to, you know, it needs to be a plague or something. We just, we can't live with this, this many people. We're exceeding the carrying capacity, all that's, that sort of stuff. That's, man, that's such an infuriating line of thinking because it's so abstracted. Like, that's something, that's just something, it seems like something you'd say when you read a book when you were 18 years old. And, yeah, and that's you know, what you have like, to realize. No like, one actually believes that that is so theoretical yeah and, and that's what it took me a long time to sort of realize this but most people's you know high level political social opinions it's stuff they thought of when they were 17 or 18 and just never reevaluated <laughs> they just never went back and revisited it it's that old yeah, they checked that box move, move to the next yeah there's that saying of like if you're if you're a liberal past age 40 you're just naive or something like that that stupid thing um it's just you're not you have to keep reevaluating your stances to see if they still hold up every so often uh, you can't just read 1984 when you're 16 and be like this is everything right and you also can't you know you can't read Ayn Rand yeah you can't read the Fountainhead that, that's like, maybe the, the more apt the more apt author choice because so many sort of like 40-something, 50-something, 60-something conservative politicians in America point to her as their their sort of uh, J.D. Salinger kind of, yeah. you know, groundbreaking, oh, this, this really spoke to me. And she was, I mean, by all accounts, just a, a, a nasty human being. Yeah. Um, Very for the Ubermensch and people who can't provide for themselves should be killed or whatever and then she dies on welfare it's just sort of a perfect encapsulation and, and there's, of all that. there's a there's a little segment on uh, John Oliver's show last week tonight how is this still a thing and why it's like a two or three minute little clip they do sometimes and uh, um, they do one on Ayn Rand how is she still a thing and they play some clips of her talking about 
uh, Native Americans, and it is you're just like what? It's like just even if you even if you read the Fountainhead and loved it as a politician, and if you if you know that there's like YouTube clips of this woman saying those things, why would you like make that public knowledge? It just seems like a political suicide to align yourself with someone who said that. Uh, but no one gives a shit. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's that, that's my thought process for every single thing in the world is, you know, think about it, get depressed, think about it, get depressed, think about it. No one gives a shit. It's <laughs> uh, always kind of the end point for all that stuff. Um, but yeah, it, this, this kind of Malthusian idea of overpopulation is the problem, right? I, I kind of ranted about this in... Last episode or the episode before that, when I was talking about um, eco-fascists, and this is kind of their argument of we can't have all these people coming in because we have finite resources and all that kind of stuff. You um, just kind of want to anyone who says overpopulation is the problem, tell them to kill themselves and see how they <laughs> react. You can you can help solve that problem right now. Right. Um, put your money where your mouth is. Put put this gun where your mouth is. <laughs> um, so, is there anything else you want to talk about with Snowpiercer before we? I just want to say I fucking loved that movie. It, uh, I remember watching it a few years ago and being very surprised at how much I liked it. It's it's ham fisted and I don't care. <laughs> I I I got caught up in it. I think it owed a little something to. Uh, I was talking about how sort of film literate Bong clearly is. Mm-hmm. I think it owed a little something to the Matrix in that it's uh, you know sort of this dystopian thing but it's also very thoughtful and but but just like the clothes that they're uh, that the the lower classes are wearing kind of reminds me of like the the guys on the ship and this sort of like industrial technology slum yeah. that the train is uh, reminds me of like the uh, the the uh, I guess it's the real world in the Matrix. Um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah, I think I think I think we've said it. Yeah, I one of the a great scene that we didn't talk about. It's just like a real quick thing is when they walk into like a like a restaurant car or something, and it looks like you know it's got like the nice carpet and yeah, people wearing like furs and yeah, it looks like very kind of like nineteen thirties. Um, and they're all dressed like they're coming out of the real world in the Matrix. Yeah, and it's a, such a good contrast with yeah, yeah, yeah. the way they look at them. They're like, oh, what? oh, Pasha. Yeah, it almost it almost reminded me of the uh, ballroom scene in The Shining when like it's all populated with like and sort of speakeasy, but it's also kind of creepy. Yeah, uh, yeah, and just that you know they shot a lot of it on or uh, like in these train car sets that were on these like gyroscope things so it to could it move now, yeah. a little bit and it's just it it's still the most expensive Korean production of all time really yeah which is kind of fascinating yeah uh, but you know it made a lot of money there uh, made a lot of money all over um, so Okja 2017 um, this film also uh, competed for the Palme d'Or, didn't win, um, but it was there and it was released via Netflix. Yeah, is one of those films. I th- I think it's interesting that, uh, like you said, I'd never seen uh, Snowpiercer or Okja, and I had, you know, just in in uh, flipping through 
Netflix, I had like heard about it, maybe seen a preview or something, and I didn't know like what who the audience for this film was coming in. I like based on what I'd seen, it could have been like a kids movie, like a PG yeah. PG rated type thing, and so I and I thought it kind of was until. Uh, that first sort of scene with Tilda Swinton, uh, you know, doing filming this commercial or whatever it is, uh, giving this scripted talk to the public in New York, it ends with her saying like, "and it, and it's gonna taste fucking delicious" or something like that. <laughs> uh, and I was like, "Oh, this is not a kids movie." Okay. Yeah, and that just underlines everything about the film, where it does have that kind of veneer of being like. A kids or like a young adult adventure coming, movie, coming of age adventure story. Like we gotta about, save the pet about a girl kind of saving stuff. her pet. Yeah, but it's, it's so much more than that. Underlying yeah. thing, and it's kind of summed up in that you know it's going to be fucking delicious. Where yeah. it's very much uh, driven by this sort of like hyper consumerism and this kind of industrial underbelly of, of mm-hmm. capitalism. Yeah, um, and and so Tilda Swinton, in a way, like we said earlier, is kind of reprising her her role from Snowpiercer as the public kind of uh, disseminator of bullshit. Yeah. Uh, she's kind of the face of this corporation, the Mirando Corporation, yeah. which sounds eerily similar to Monsanto, you know. Uh, which had, like, I, I would say that's probably intentional. Yeah. Sort of like that Iron Man thing. Yeah, another thing I wanted to say about casting is in Okja... I can't remember the actor's name, but he's the 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 uh, seems to be one of the top dogs of the Miranda Corporation. Is the guy who plays Gus Fring? Gus, what did, what's his name? Gus Fring and Gus Fring Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. Giancarlo Esposito. Yeah, and he's so good in Breaking Bad, and he's good in Ocha. But he, I mean, that's what people know him from. Yeah, and so to have the guy who's you know in a lot of ways running this corporation be associated in the viewership's mind with not only a corrupt businessman but a, a, a someone fronting as a fast food you know remember it's, yeah. it's uh, Los Hermanos Los Pollos Hermanos yeah Chicken uh, Brothers yeah so he's he's the face of fast food and this clearly corrupt you know drug enterprise. Anyway, I just thought it was perfect casting to have your, it is. your CEO a fast food drug lord. Yeah, and Gyllenhaal going just like Nightcrawler crazy. If, if I... I don't know. I'd have to watch it again to to, to qualify this, but it, even for this movie, his performance seemed a little over the top. Yeah, just the voice alone is yeah. just so... He's got this like high-pitched like... I don't even know how to explain, like a mad scientist sort of voice. Yeah. Um, which he kind of is. Um, but one of my favorite <laughs> scenes is when he uh, they go to Korea and he like hikes up the mountain to go see Okja. Right. It's when you first meet him, right? Yeah, and he's uh he's he's doing the like T V spot for it and he's explaining like the competition. And just the way his voice changes and he's like mm-hmm. seeing her in person is even more impressive. I can't and, fake these emotions. <laughs> and then he asked the the grand the grandfather like, "How did you make her? How did you get her to be so healthy?" And it's like, "We just let her run around." And he's like, "Just let her run around, beguiling." It's <laughs> <laughs> so just that his character is so just like goofy 
but also very clearly evil. Yeah, sinister. And, yeah. But also conflicted about it and, and like, damaged very heavily. You kind of, because it's Gyllenhaal, you're... I was kind of waiting on his turnaround. You know, I kind of thought by the end of the movie we'd see him atone for his sins and do something cool because you kind of want to like him. Yeah. Uh, but you don't. He he gets the shit into the stick at the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, and he he is in what is, to me, like the, well, first or second most disturbing scenes is when he's, when he has Ocha in the, the test room or whatever and he's like taking the samples out of her side with the probe and then and clearly doesn't want to be he says I'm an animal I'm an animal lover everybody knows that about me and then (laughs) one of the funniest moments is right after that they're showing this like jerky they've made and it's running through these like people giving their opinions on the test they've just taken and the kid in the middle says fuck yeah (laughs) <laughs> like here's a Slim Jim Fuck yeah you. he's like you know he grills up the samples and yeah, yeah it's really it, it's sort of and I, I'm pretty sure you know Bong made this movie and I think he ended up becoming a vegetarian or a vegan because of the research that he put into making this film um, and it is like Snowpiercer it's very clear what he's trying to tell you he's saying you know it's the production and the consumption of meat is of a bad thing it's it's immoral in a lot of different ways um it's well at least when it's done on this sort of industrial scale mm-hmm. um with this kind of profit motive underneath it like it becomes just inherently immoral to be a part of it right but most people don't ever think about it or they think about it and if it kind of it's become kind of a joking thing of like meat is murder has sort of become this laughing yeah line. Yeah. Um, well, it's 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 stuff. hidden in plain sight. It's like over, like you said, meat is murder is a joke. Um, it's like over publicized in a way that's it's yeah. uh, what's the anesthetic of familiarity. Yeah, and veganism um, has also become like a punchline, right? Like Turkey and stuff like that. right, and it's hidden in in rhetoric too, in in like just in old traditional ways like you call a cow beef when it's food and you call a cow before it's food you know Um, and so they're they're sort of built in rhetorical tactics to distance you so you can like intellectually know it but if I'm using a different word for it clearly there's still some something going on trying to distance you from the reality of it um, yeah. So there's a difference between intellectually understanding something and having it fucking hit you in the heart, you know, the, the implications of it. And I think Okja, in a lot of ways, is trying to break through that, you know, move from understanding to feeling because it does sort of uh, unapologetically use these sort of emotional situations. Like, you care whether or not this little girl gets her pet back. Yeah. Uh, but it also uses that relationship as a much bigger thing. It's not... It's not, does this one little girl get her pet back? It's, it's can this bureaucracy and just clusterfuck of a status quo be uh, navigated in a way to allow for like a peaceful way of being in the world represented by her and her dad in 
in the mountains, uh, you know, frolicking through the through yeah, the woods, bothering and, no one, bothering no one, having like a carbon footprint next to zero, right. like just doing their own thing. One thing I really uh, thought was a, a cool idea was that it seemed like Bong was probably trying to avoid any sort of criticism as as a luddite. Um, yeah. w- with with how he represents uh, Mija and her father, and so he he's clear to show us, uh, or he's uh, certain to show us uh, that the father has this like sort of big intercom system, like clearly technological, you know, where he can like call Mija. Yeah. Home through the through this system, and they watch TV. Yeah, it's a satellite old, dish. Yeah, it's old TV. So it's like it's a uh, it's not a, a a luddite position of like everything associated with the modern world is evil and should be escaped in in retreat, you know, uh, into nature. It's just here's a here's a peaceful family. Um, here's a a. Uh, a peaceful way of being, and it's heavily contrasted with this, you know, uh, what New York represents a sort of frenetic chaos of media and social media and uh, employment and bureaucracy. It's sort of a, a comparison between being completely immersed in this world of technology and progress and all this kind of stuff and incorporating it into your life in a way that you know improves it or sort of you know changes it in ways that aren't completely alienating right sort of incorporating it in in these bits and pieces as opposed to just being fully whole hog involved in it um I do like that New York City is is sort of the uh whole hog whole hog's a good metaphor for this movie um New York City being this kind of stand-in, it was kind of funny, and that's in, in that Gyllenhaal scene where he's like, "We're going to bring the the finalists to New York City." <laughs> yeah, and, and New York is used, yeah, metaphorically there, and and I noticed, so that it starts with that scene with Tilda Swinton giving this talk in two thousand seven, and then when it cuts to Mija's story, it says ten years later, far from New York. Yeah. So it's it doesn't matter where it is, what what's important in the audience's mind. Bong suggests is that this is not New York. This is the opposite of New York. Uh, yeah. And that, to talk more about how well he puts together sequences, there's the scene where there's the, the parade when they're supposed to like be revealing Okja and, and Okja sort of like busts through the, the float and like roars and mm-hmm. just that scene is so well shot. Like, I don't have anything to say about it other than it just is cool. <laughs> and, and that's that's one of the things that's uh, so great about Snowpiercer and Okja is like you could just smoke a joint, drink a six pack, and watch these movies and just like be very entertained yeah. because it's just very pleasurable. Uh, and like I said, Snowpiercer is just fucking badass. If I was 14, I'd be like, yes! Uh, I love this fucking movie. It's like, uh, like I said, it's like the Patriot. You know, it's just like <laughs> let me just let me just revel in this sadistic violence. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, there it's it's he's very technically talented. Yeah. Uh, but but 
if you do pay attention, if you don't drink that six pack while you watch it, uh, you do notice that a lot of the uh, the pageantry of it is in service of kind of the more uh, issue based uh, substance of it. And one thing I noticed that I thought was kind of interesting is his uh, his co-writer for the script, and I can't remember his name, but he was a writer of The Men Who Stare at Goats. Mm. If you've ever seen that like weird George Clooney I've seen movie. some of it, yeah. But it, it kind of explained a little bit of the, the weirdness of Okja to me. Um, because there are, you know, kind of like in Snowpiercer, there are these characters like Johnny Wilcox, which is Jill Hall's character, and Tilda Swinton's characters. She plays Lucy and Nancy, Nancy the, yeah. the twins. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of confused with like what was going on with that. Yeah, it's a little something, a little strange. Yeah. Um, but then you have the, those are the sort of characters that are most sort of associated with this oppressive kind of corporation that's doing these nefarious things. And then you meet the uh, Animal Liberation Front group, which is led by Paul Dano, playing Jay, and uh, the, his uh, you know comrades in the van. And they are completely earnest, kind of in their goal, and they're, they're not goofy. Uh, the only goofy thing is you have Kay, Stephen Yuen's character, who doesn't speak Korean very well, mm-hmm. and that's sort of the comedic relief of the group Um, but other than that they're very earnest they have a very clear goal Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not really a laughing matter at all Um, and there's that great scene of uh, going back to sort of the eco-terrorism episode where we were saying that um, the environmental liberation front had never committed a murder earth Earth liberation front yeah Yeah, I think it's earth liberation front Um, they had never injured anyone, never killed anyone, they're still labeled a terrorist organization. The Animal Liberation Front, same thing. They've never, as far as I know, have never murdered anyone or hurt anyone, Right. Um, but still labeled as a terrorist organization. Because, you know, it's a real life. And like I said, you keep waiting for this backpedal to happen, and it doesn't. And, and, and Bong really emphasizes their credo of, of not hurting anyone not even not even lying to anyone it's like not just don't hurt anyone don't don't tell a lie um, but he, and, he, and he emphasizes that because the movie does kind of glorify this sort of activism yeah um, in in a refreshing way yeah um, even down to like the fact that Jay is always wearing a suit yeah just kind of an interesting choice if he's but, a, you can't. You don't really know whether you know how much he's glorifying them until that scene where uh, Jay has snuck into the hotel room to to contact Mija, and he has he goes full uh, love actually, and is talking to her on the cue cards yeah. or whatever, and then he's just gonna sort of silently disappear, and Bong goes out of his way. He gives he gives this otherwise meaningless scene uh, like two minutes of Paul Dano just like going out the window sliding very coolly sliding down the ladder sort of taking off his disguise and hanging his hat on the you know on the dumpster or whatever Um, and it's it's 
seems a little gratuitous, but it's it's just like, look what a fucking badass this guy is. <laughs> it's like James Bond or something. Yeah, it's, it's, like it's exactly way. right. It, it really is. That's a good reference. Uh, Thank you. That, that, I mean, that's what he's doing is making a sort of nerd. I mean, Paul Dano's just kind of got this sort of innocent persona, this kind of nerdy. Uh, yeah. Nerdy. He's very good at the like even but not monotone, serious voice of mm-hmm. like explaining things. Right. He's very good at that. Yeah, but and then but then he's shot in this sort of James Bond yeah. sequence, and it's just it's very cool. It is, and uh, going back to this idea that you know they they've never hurt anyone; their only crime is against property. In this case, Okja being seen as property of the corporation, and so you have the scene where they're being detained, and you have the cops, you know, like wrestling beating Paul Dano like beating him, him. Yeah. Um, very much like it just reminded me of uh, if a tree falls when you see people being you know pulled out of trees and pepper sprayed and beaten mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff um, so he, he very much does present it as you know this is one area where the authorities have it wrong like they're just in the wrong mm-hmm. and there's really no gray area there right um, and part of it is that Okja is cute and the whole first third of the movie or so was just her frolicking with the girl, with Mija out and like swimming and jumping in the water and then saves Mija's life when she falls off the cliff and stuff like that. Yeah, and you know she's sort of smart. You know Okja is smart. But the, the sort of moral calculus for the rest of the movie changes in that moment when she saves her life because uh, Okja pulls off this like extremely kind of geometrical yeah this this move that allows her it's it's a perfect sort of scene now that I think about it to suggest what it is trying to because it suggests that Okja is both extremely smart because it can figure out the sort of dimensions of this of this problem so quickly and but that the solution is also a sacrificial one it's like she is both extremely intelligent and moral in this one yeah. act you know? which uh, you know going off you know a century of discourse about animal rights that's kind of more than enough to justify Okja being treated almost you know like a human um, mm-hmm. in the eyes of the law I mean like it, it, of considering Okja to be and, uh, of uh, having rights yeah, yeah of a being with agency and with you know knowledge of the world around them and not just having so the kind of you know Peter Singer talking about the the self interest of an animal because they right. they have a fear of pain they know to avoid it they know to try to preserve their own life so therefore that should be more than enough to consider them you know worthy of not being right. tortured or whatever and, and it's so infuriating to hear and you hear this sort of type of logic in a lot of different areas uh, and the logic is in order to you, you, you hear it it's sort of the subtext of the phrase finding common ground you know um, the idea is that the logic is that in order to care about something and treat it with respect and and uh, morally you have to liken it to yourself first it's like how narcissistic is that so, so before an animal gains any uh, agency or respect or rights, 
it has to be proven that that animal is like a human. Yeah. Because we all know humans are the standard. Yeah. Um, it, it's weirdly, I had that thought, I think, for the first time um, at the Boys and Girls Club. Uh, I was working at the Boys and Girls Club and Trayvon Martin, uh, the Trayvon Martin uh, murder happened. And uh, you just, uh, we were having a discussion with all the kids, uh, I mean, it's teenagers, and sort of asking them what they thought, how they felt. And you, I kept hearing kids, 16, 17 year olds, say things about finding common ground. And, and they're just repeating stuff they've heard, you know. Uh, but it just made me think, like, why should we have to find common ground before we don't want to kill someone? Uh, why not just respect people and not murder them innately, yeah. uh, whether they're like us or not? And so I think you can apply that sort of logic to animals. Um, and, of course, there's going to be some sort of utilitarian... Um, argument against that of like, well, they're food. It's like, well, that's a self fulfilling prophecy, you know. If if you believe they're food and act as if they're food, then yeah, they're food. Yeah. But there and there's a to to find the common ground. Um, there is there are movements, especially among a lot of like well known chefs, of you know treating animals with something like respect, even though you're eating them, right? Of yeah, there's uh, a free range chicken, like is the the famous sort of example. You go to Kroger and it says free range chicken right. on the side. Right, and uh, Joel Salatin is is a big sort of personality associated with that movement of Polyface Farms in Virginia, who um, is is like I said a a well known figure who who slaughters animals yeah. uh, but he's he's very much in favor of uh, doing it in the most humane way possible doing it uh, you know in a way that affords the animals some dignity and, and uh, freedom in their life before their before their slaughter yeah. um, and and I can you know hear a sort of radical kind of vegan thinker saying, that's potentially worse because it just kind of, uh, it, you know, potentially perpetuates the system. You know, by softening it, it you're making it more likely to continue. And I, I would sympathize with that for sure. Uh, a good, a, I think maybe the best thing I've read in favor of eating continuing to eat meat is Michael Pollan's essay in, I think it's called An Animal's Place and I believe it was in the New York Times or the New Yorker uh, I can't remember which one um, 2001 or so and it's a pretty it's a pretty good article it's, it's very thought provoking I don't remember all the details of it but I remember thinking um, that it was it was thought, thoughtful in ways I didn't expect it to be, and 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 economically conscious. Um, and and at no point will you ever hear Michael Pollan 
argue for eating industrial meat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's just uh, like so many other issues. It's a problem of of overconsumption and overproduction and mm-hmm. excess and and you know all these classic things that wreak havoc on the world of a uh, you know factory farming and why do you think Burger King can sell you 20 chicken nuggets for $2 or whatever mm. um, and you know you watch something like Food Inc or something or like PETA has been making these videos for and you know I have their issues with PETA beyond their view on animals or their view on factory farming I mean um, but you know you don't have to look far to see how incredibly brutal and and just awful those conditions are that a lot of the meat gets produced under, and a lot of that's reproduced in, in Ocha. Um, and it's even it, it, in No Country for Old Men the fact that Anton Sugar uses a cattle gun. Yeah, it, it, that's you know this very deeply like dehumanizing on the one hand, but also showing the sort of uh, mechanicalness that he has as far as murdering people goes. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, how, the the, the dispassion. Yeah, just, and it's like yeah. a, the weird distance. From it, yeah. Um, but yeah, Nocha at the uh, the film's conclusion, when Amija goes into the factory where they're slaughtering all these super pigs, um, is very disturbing. But it's it's based on real world stuff, right? You can go into any you know beef processing factory and they're doing the same thing to cows. Um, you know, and I around here, you know, I'll drive past the field and there'll be like cows out in the field and I'm always like oh cute cows and then av- after a minute I'm like well I do eat beef sometimes so that's yeah. sucks that <laughs> this cute cow that I just saw I was like oh, I'm gonna be eating eventually it's it's really interesting so I spent time on a on an organic uh, dairy and chicken farm uh, last summer and it's really interesting to see how big of a split there is within sort of environmentally minded people on uh, the role of animals and these people uh, I met in Spain were this particular farm which was called Mas Plenesis were very uh, very skeptical of veganism and of the mind that in order to live in a sustainable way um, and have enough food so they're conscious of like population issues uh, that animals would sort of have to be eaten uh, in order to feed everyone and so, so they're sort of trying to take in the uh, things into consideration Assuming that the kind of capitalistic industrial food industry goes away, okay. So, so they're very in line with a lot of sort of mainstream environmental. Not that's not mainstream environmental thought, but in line with um, countercultural. Uh, you know, a lot of eco philosophies go hand in hand with Marxist philosophies. Um, so. So there's a lot of overlap in, in, in what they believed in terms of environmentally, but they were very opinionated that, you know, I mean, they were they were capturing rabbits to make stew. Uh, 
And so they're very against, you know, capitalistic, industrial, factory farming. Uh, but they're thinking, they're, I think they were sort of priding themselves on being practical and saying, okay, let's assume that that uh, industry is gone. So the, the primary way in which the majority of people in, you know, first world countries get their food is gone. How, how does everyone get enough food? Uh, I don't know if I'm convinced by it. You, uh, you grind up bugs to make protein bars. To make fruit roll-ups. Yeah, I'd eat them. <laughs> weirdly, those things... They didn't look bad. Snowpiercer. No, they look like fruit roll-ups. I was like, I'd take a bite of that. <laughs> um, hey, you know bugs? There are plenty of places around the world where they just eat bugs as part of their diet, and it's yeah. it's protein. It's clean-ass protein. It, you can... It's abundant. You can get it easily. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then just the very idea. In, in Ocha, it's sort of not quite as nuanced as that, I think, just because it's uh, the way it's presented is sort of, or well, maybe it is nuanced, but at least factory produced meat is shown as being just evil and, and soulless and yeah. brutal and all this yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just the scene where me just walking through the factory and she looks down at her feet and, and she's standing next to a drain with all this blood and you see the guy like mm-hmm. squeegeeing the blood toward the drain yeah. um, and the guy with the, the cattle gun like killing the super pigs and the thing that's holding them and they're you know the real disturbing thing where they like land in it and they're like screaming and trying to get away and then they just hit them with the cattle gun um, and then Okja drops into the thing and that's the scene in the film where like your heart stops a little bit you're like oh Right, because you care about this particular one. Yeah. Um, because Mija does. And to the to the film's credit, I, I, I won't say I liked it, um, this part, but I thought it was important that it, that it showed this, that after she sort of saves, after Mija saves Okja and they're leaving... You see that the line resumes and yeah. and the slaughter continues. It would have been less honest on an emotional level um, had they like shut down production or, 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 or yeah, shut like down the snow piercer and yeah. blown up the factory or right, whatever. Right. Um, but no, instead, Bija does or has to participate in this sort of capitalist system. She has to give. Tilda Swinton's character, the gold, the solid gold pig that she had been, you know, given as a gift um, to buy Ocha. It literally takes a like a, an idol, you know, a golden idol yeah. to, to buy back Ocha. And only then do they let her, you know, walk out of the factory. And she just so clearly doesn't care at all. It's like Paul Dano's character says, like, I, you know, I try to respect every. I have respect for every creature, but you are testing my limits, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, because because she doesn't really exhibit any qualities of a sentient human being, you know. There's no, there's like almost no understanding of emotion on her part. Um, it is literally just about what will financially benefit her, yeah. um, which of course is a, you know, 
an exaggeration of greed and materialism, but but not that far from the truth. No. And then the the final, well, near final scenes when they're walking out of the factory and you see the, the sort of cattle yards with all the super pigs sort of as far as the eye can see and they're behind the fence. And that's when the two, and, and this is again sort of... Uh, anthropomorphizing them a little bit when the two super pigs push their their baby like out through the fence toward them yeah and uh Okja scoops it up in her mouth to hide it from the guards and they they get away with it and bring it back to Korea with them and they the three of them or I guess the four of them um live together and continue to live in this kind of harmony but in the back of your head you know that the factory is still churning away <clears throat> they're still you know uh, ex- er, well, executing, yeah, why not? Slaughtering is, is the proper term, but I think executing works for what we're talking about. These super pigs, you know, by the hundreds a day. Yeah. Um, and so you're right, it's this kind of bittersweet ending of like, it, it, and it, it kind of gets back to this idea of shattering this idea of Okja as a, uh, like a young adult movie or something, because the mission's accomplished. Like, right. the, she got her pet back. She even got another pet to go along with it, another, you know, you know, other can. It's like that aspect of the, of the movie is, is, is yeah, yeah, that's fine. But there's this whole underlying, underlying thing this, of yeah. she didn't change the system; it's mm-hmm. still churning away in the background. Right. Uh, I've been sort of making my way. You mentioned uh, anthropomorphism, which I think is a very important thing to talk about with this movie. And I've been making my way through this sort of, sort of like a textbook, uh, just called Eco Criticism. Greg Gerard. Uh, and I read the, his chapter on animals. And he says, uh, the skeptical attack on sentimental views of animals risks making it impossible to describe animal behavior at all. So the problem is to distinguish between kinds of anthropomorphism. End quote. And so his, his larger point is that And he's, he says animals are always the observed. I mean, from a human perspective, if we're talking about the relationship between humans and animals, animals are always the observed. And so there's no way to have a conception, a human conception of animals, and it not be anthropomorphic. We are the anthros, you know. Yeah. Um, and so what you're really talking about is good uh, good types of anthropomorphism and bad types of anthropomorphism and what good and bad constitute is is kind of up for debate um, and I think what what a lot of people have said a lot of eco critics have said is good is an anthropomorphism that um, allows that that allows hu- that that deals in humility, human humility, that that human beings are not the measure of things, even while concocting that definition and sort of being the measure of it. You see what I'm saying? There's a contradiction yeah. there. There's a kind of a paradox of like I am the stand I am create I am the standard creating um, an idea that says I'm not the standard. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it's like a, it's like Airbud. It's exactly like everybody. So you have this golden retriever whooping everybody's ass in basketball, and they're like, "I got to rethink my position on the global food chain." Clearly, I've miscalculated. 
You got um, it. Well, as I was watching Oaks, I was thinking, I've seen this before. This is Babe 2, Pig in the City. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, you know, Babe did have some of those moments of... Uh, but, you know, it was different because they were living on a farm. I remember the scene where the farmer is going to shoot Babe, and Babe puts his mouth on the the gun because he thinks it's a feeding tube. There's no bullets! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, and then it turns into Animal Farm. Um, just all the films that we've talked about merge into one super yes. film. Yeah, I haven't... Okay, I haven't seen Babe in a long time. I remember reading somewhere, could have been when I was 15 on a blog somewhere, and so I don't know if there's you read any... read a lot of Babe blogs. Uh, oh, I read a then. lot of Babe. You know, when you're Googling... You babe, typed in Babes and you're like, oh, this one's... Yeah. Because uh, you were a how... teenager in the 80s and you typed babe. <laughs> right, because the internet was in the 80s. Yeah. Um, I can't remember where I read this, that babe was intentionally sort of ideologically opposed to Animal Farm and kind of a refutation of it. Yeah, because the, the way the pig gets respect from the farmer is to basically... Work hard. Work hard. is to be a, a sheep dog, but a pig, a sheep pig. And I so the, by being by being of service to the farmer, that's how he kind of earns his respect, his keep on the farm. Which is the complete opposite of Animal Farm. Right. Um, uh, or at least that's what I'm going with. I'd, I'd really like to... Maybe we should do uh, an Animal <laughs> Farm babe, babe uh, um, week. And then Garfield, the tale of two kitties. <laughs> uh, but the, that, this has nothing to do with anything but for some reason this week I thought of a uh, a, tr- uh, a uh, porn idea it was Charles Dickens uh, Great Sexpectations colon uh, Just the Pip what do you think of that? this makes me think of a uh... An old episode of Beavis and Butthead where it's like a Christmas carol, but it's a porn version. And instead of Bob Cratchit, it's Bob Scratchit. And Tiny Tim is still Tiny Tim. Um, anyway. Um, I apologize I for that. I lost track of what I was talking about. Um, so what we should talk about since we're, we're uh, running short on time a little bit is... Um, this idea of emotional manipulation in the film, because I was, I was explaining to you before we started that uh, someone I know watched Oakja and said they didn't like it because they thought the director was being emotionally manipulative. And my whole thing was, well, that's... All movies do that. Like, that's... As an artist, that's what you're trying to do is manipulate trying. someone's emotion. Right. Um, and you can do that in, in good faith or in bad faith. And where uh, Bong kind of runs up against that a little bit is because he is being so... You know, ham-fisted, which is usually is a word with a negative connotation, but it, here he's trying to use it for for these causes that he really sort of believes in, or is really sort of trying to put them forward as like like this is what's bad, this is what could be better. But even then, there's some gray area involved in there. So um, whether it's worth for an artist to be try to be subtle and risk their message being missed versus being direct knowing that they could be accused of being, um, you know, un, you know, unbending or whatever it may be. Yeah, and, and I was saying, we sort of touched on this, uh, I guess we talked about this before we started recording, you know, one man's emotional manipulation is another man's propaganda, is yeah. another man's 
art is another man's didacticism. Like, it just depends on how you feel about the issue. Um, your how you feel about the issue determines what you call the director's yeah, treatment yeah. of it. Uh, so, so if I believe, you know, that free market ideology is the way, the truth, and the life, and I watch the old school Fountainhead. <laughs> You're like, oh, this is. I'm like, oh, this is so so honest so yeah. uh, you know the, you can tell the passion that the, the director has about the subject like and if I'm, if I'm myself I'm like this is fucking propaganda you yeah. know to to uh, you know spread spread some sort of That's terrible like, message like a, like a Nazi watching a Lenny Riffenstahl movie and you're like oh She's telling it like it is. Right, exactly. exactly. Um, as opposed to watching like old 40s American propaganda and being like, well, obviously we're the good guys. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting too how people talk about propaganda films as if they are a thing in the past and not still. No, I mean, we in the last episode like this, we talked about Clint Eastwood and yeah. his movies are, or at least his later movies are pretty directly yeah. propaganda for America. Yeah. Uh, or for a certain view of what America is and should be. Right, and so, and so we have problems with, and there are clear sort of intellectual problems with what, you know, with his sort of bolstering of kind of traditional racist American values. And so we take issue with it, and we call it propaganda. When we watch this movie and we see, we see a director being thoughtful, uh, but, but grinding an axe nonetheless, we call it, cool yeah you know what I'm saying we're both uh, very much in favor of so, what he's doing in both movies so you know I, I'm gonna have to think about that I don't I don't really know how I feel about that all I know is I uh, I agree with this movie um, <laughs> yeah that's the thing is uh, at the end of both of them I'm thinking like you're saying like hell yeah yeah this is this is a good movie but there are plenty of other people that will watch it and be like it's Liberal propaganda. Yeah, it's like like we talked about with Wally, the the reviews, sort of conservative reviews, calling it liberal fascism or whatever. It was. Yeah, um, which is, I mean, which all that means kind of what is we're doing. <laughs> you you disagree with this stance. Yeah, um, and and really, and I think maybe the, the person you're talking about who called Oakja emotionally. Manipulative. Uh, what what someone who says that might be pointing to is a lot of times people feel like something is lost if the message is overt. So so yeah, it's if you're not if you don't have to try really hard to understand it, then it's not true art, right? That kind of and so and so then that's problematic because then your definition of art is is really the definition of like a puzzle or a, or a you know, just kind of a, the pleasure of art then is decoding as opposed to feeling or thinking. You know what I'm saying? Um, and that's just that's uh, that's when I think of art, that's not what I think of. I don't think of a sort of logic puzzle where oh, this is that, this is that. Um, you can be entertained and you can be provoked I think by those things but I don't think you will be truly moved and, and I think movies uh, real art when you encounter and I, I think I think art is subjective you know 
depending on what you're watching, I could have a, I could call something art and you could hate it and you could say it's trashy entertainment. Um, it kind of depends on how it, how it moves you. Um, but you don't have to be told when something's art. You know what I'm saying? You will experience it as such. And that's sort of what makes it art, I yeah. think. You know um, when you see it. Kind of yeah, thing. yeah. So art and pornography are the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know Which what is what we've been getting at the whole time, right? Yeah. 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 Creates expectations. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think when you're talking about being manipulated by work of art, to me that just tells you that it's working. Yeah. On some level. And to go back to Lars von Trier for a second, I remember reading or hearing something about him, his film um, Dance from the Dark, which I don't think you've seen, with, with no. Bjork, where he it's a very powerful movie. It is terribly sad. I remember the, the person I watched it with wept, like, deeply watching this movie. And he said... I just want the viewer... I think he said this about Dance from the Dark and Breaking the Waves. He said, I just kind of want the audience to feel as much as they can. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so and so that's that's what he did. He was like, I'm just going to like... I just want you to have a really emotional experience. Uh, and so he just... Just uh, lets it rip. It's unapologetically sentimental and, you know emotionally manipulated but you get this sort of unique experience in the, in both of those movies um, so I don't think there's anything wrong I th- like I'm agreeing with you saying uh, emotional manipulation is like kind of what storytelling is yeah, yeah. Um, because because you can you could just like <laughs> here here would be a, a not emotionally manipulative version of Okja this little girl has this pet named Okja, who's this giant genetically engineered super pig, and someone takes it to New York and she tries to get it back and she does get it back, but she doesn't really change that much. Like, okay, I just told you the story in a non-emotionally manipulative way. Although that's not really true because I manipulated it to make it sound specifically to make it sound like more sterile more sterile right so is is there a way to tell a story that's not emotionally manipulative that i think i'm affirming my initial point it's, it's like, impossible to not manipulate emotions into yeah. telling a story well it's like if you if you have a friend who's really bad at telling jokes it's that kind of thing like they're, they're it's a, a rhetorical and emotional failure that they can't make this thing that is supposed to be humorous funny to you right um, so I don't I don't know to to discredit someone for using something effectively for like using their uh, art to effectively accomplish this purpose they're setting out to accomplish I think is a little bit silly. Well, and I think it comes uh, in a lot of ways it comes from a misunderstanding of like and, and kind of a just kind of a douchebag understanding of what art is because <laughs> you get this idea. I kind of associate this idea with like a William F. Buckley kind of mentality, this sort of, you know, in quotes, sophisticated conservative philosophy of, uh, you know, art for art's sake. It's this sort of sophisticated legacy, 
this thing to know about and to discuss over expensive wine with your other yeah. rich friends. Art for art's sake. And, and of course, Nietzsche said we have art and art alone that we don't die of the truth. But that, it depends on what your definition of art is because I don't think you can uh, separate art from truthful treatment of life if, if your definition of art is this sort of secluded retreat from life to me that doesn't sound like art that sounds like a hobby you know or some <laughs> sort of distraction George W. Bush painting <laughs> yes yeah that's some sort of that's some sort of distraction and, and I don't think that that's you know categorically entertainment um, so well that's why in learning about art so when I was in high school, I got really into, like, learning about 20th century art specifically and took, like, an art history AP class. And that was the only year they offered that class because no one wanted to take it other than, like, me and a few other the, the people in my grade. And uh, I was just really into the Dadaists and the Surrealists and those kind of people that kind of threw up a big middle finger to this idea of, uh, you know primness and properness in art and art for art's sake and that, that sort of stuff and you know you have uh, Marcel Duchamp creating a fountain which is just a urinal <laughs> it says and he signs it R. Mutt um, and you know Henri Magritte with his, his painting of you know this is not a pipe that sort of stuff um, and the art is not necessarily the visual thing that you're seeing the art is sort of all of the message that comes along with it mm-hmm. which is what people you know it there are a lot of different opinions about this, but sort of what Banksy started out as before he got co-opted and monetized and made into this, um, you know, they're selling his, or auctioning off his works for millions of dollars, which just sort of proves his point, right. <laughs> I guess, right. that he's making a lot of, a lot of his works. Um, so, you know, when we talk about that in reference to, to Bong, um, you know, he's he's obviously, like we've been saying over and over again, he's very well-versed in what it takes to make a good film from a technical standpoint. Like, he understands... An entertaining film, yeah. Yeah, he understands how to be a director and how to make a effective film. And he's using that to make these films that seem very direct and very, you know, to the point, but they're also very carefully constructed to, to do that in a way that's not alienating or... or doesn't ruin the film in any way. They're still very entertaining. Um, so you, you don't come away from it saying, you know, I like Dokja, but I wish he would have dialed back on the messaging a little bit. Like, yeah, you don't that say would, that. That would be to dial back on the film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we mentioned the sort of coming of age, kind of um, young person, adolescent kind of YA aspect of this movie. And it's, it's interesting to talk about didacticism uh, in in relation to the YA aspects of this because young adult literature is for a long time was and probably still is steeped in this sort of preachiness and, and it's the idea that young adult literature is written to instruct uh, you know as a sort of as sort of guidance for young people. Um, 
and it, and and it's been problematized by all different types of thinkers as sort of authoritarian, and this is a way of, you know, controlling in in some measure, um, maintaining a, an eye on or control over young people, determining what they think is right, you know, blah 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 blah. Um, but it's interesting that that genre, you know, of, of young adult literature is so steeped in that. And, and this film is, is certainly didactic to keep using that infuriating pretentious word. Um, I don't know what a better word, you might just say preachy, uh, you know, has a message to convey overtly. Um, but yeah, I think that's what bothers, uh, it just bothers people to think that that there's more going on than just like surface level entertainment. It, they're like upset to know. It's like, it, it, if it's there, I don't want to know about it. It's kind of the attitude it seems like. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes from just pretension among people you know, like us who <laughs> like literature and movies and like pointing out little things that are there. And but but it's also like the filmmakers put them there. Yeah, yeah. It's not like we're just making this shit up. You yeah. Know? Uh, but it's it, and I would say like it's mainly from people who present themselves as like I noticed this about this book or this film, therefore. I understood it better than you did, therefore you're dumber and I'm right. smarter. And, and the whole relation there is not like, oh, I understood this, you know, I understood Okja and I understood the sort of discourse it situates itself in, therefore I'm going to say, stop eating factory-produced industrial meat. That's not, that's not what it's about. It's about identity. It's about, I understood this film and therefore I'm smarter than you, like you just said. Yeah. Uh, it's not about the message itself; it's that you understood the message. That, I mean, this it. is this is the whole diagnosis of academia. <laughs> I yeah. mean, it, it's like, oh, let's let's know as much as possible and not do a fucking thing about it. That uh, and obviously that's not that's a generalization. There's plenty of activism within the academy, but no, I, I take that back. There's some activism in the academy. There's not plenty of it. Uh, which is, that's that's what pisses me off about all the like right wing thing of campus culture is ruining America and we have to take back campus for conservatives and they don't realize like all campuses are inherently conservative just like even if the professors are very left wing the university itself is a very conservative institution yes in a lot yes of ways. and 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 if there are left wing professors they are consistently and constantly fighting an uphill battle against yeah. the conservative and usually for just funding of their department yes um, yeah, yeah so. the uh, the sort of meme is that you know campuses are what they were like people talk about like the 60s middle Tennessee State University or or UT or University of Kentucky or wherever it is they talk about them and it's usually people who have not been there. And then they talk about them as if they were Berkeley in the 1960s. Yeah. It's like, do you know what's happening? It's like even in the 60s. There's a concrete management major. Do you think... <laughs> and it's one of the biggest ones on campus. Right. Do you? It's think, a moneymaker. Do you think like left-wing 
you know, you think they're like uh, espousing Marxist philosophy? In Concrete. There? They're learning how to build socialist, they're Soviet, brutalist yeah. structures, <laughs> brutalist apartment blocks. They believe in concrete reality. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's and even in the '60s, it's not like every campus was Berkeley. That's just naive to think that, right? right? So, right. Um, you know, there are definitely liberal elements on campuses, but to say that like every campus is like that is just yeah. And, and what just, they do is they Fox News puts these exceptions on the on the news, yeah. uh, and it's like you know, a school in in uh, like Vermont or in something. Vermont and Oregon what was the, the one I can't remember what it was where they had this sort of radical takeover Brett Weinstein was like who's like a somewhat liberal uh, professor got like these students came into his classroom and demanded that he resign oh shit was it was that the dude at Drexel or whatever anyway, I, I, don't I can't remember, remember. Anyway, there's a, there's a lot, but but like, how many schools has that happened at? Yeah, and, and, and like, also let's let's actually look at the particulars of what happened there, um, before we you know put it on Fox News and make it this talking point for you know sixty five year old men who like, I mean that's all they're doing is talking about it. Well, now it's even like just. It, we don't need to get into it. But it's just <laughs> all these little things that get into campus culture, like now the whole debate over Israel and Palestine that, um, you know, we have at MTSU, there's a, a very prominent faculty member, um, like a provost or something, that uh, is very pro-Israel, and they they lead trips to Israel every year, um, and they take them to the nice parts. They take them to, like, the beach and show them nice things, and ask them to get baptized while they're in the Holy Land and weird stuff like that, but they never show them what reality is like for Palestinians right. in the West Bank or anything like that. There's a, there's a great segment uh, that Vice made about the role Israel plays in kind of conservative American church, especially Baptist churches. Oh, yeah. Because because you see, we're in, you know, we're in Middle Tennessee here, and you see... Stickers just like on minivans. I support Israel. They say, I support Israel. And like, what the fuck do you know about Israel? Nothing. They know it's the Holy Land. And they know that according to Revelation, the Jews have to be in control of the Holy Land for the world to end and Jesus to come back and tell them that they did everything right. (laughs) Right. And so, and so Vice basically takes 10 or 20 minutes and explains that and it shows some of these tours that are being given in, in Israel. Yeah. So remember that if you see that, you're seeing someone who is so dumb that they're trying to hasten the end of the world right? because they're so sure that they're completely, they're, they're the kind of people that would buy super pig meat at Walmart. Fuck yeah. <laughs> they'd, buy, they'd buy a 50 pack of super pig hot dogs to grill out at the lake, that kind of thing. Yep. Um, well, fuck, okay. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I uh, guess that's it. Um, did you want to say something about uh Climate fiction and genre. Oh yeah, I, just, I wrote the demo because um, I was just kind of thinking about how most climate fiction takes the shape of some sort of sort of sci-fi-ish or speculative thing. So like Snowpiercer is very yeah. sort of. And we were talking about dystopian uh, orcs and crake, Margaret Atwood. Yeah, some sort of speculative fiction. Yeah. That kind of stuff, and how you usually don't see it take the the shape of like 
what we would call realism or something akin to that. Mm-hmm. Like a, right now I'm reading uh, Richard Powers' The Overstory, which is very much, I would say it's very much climate fiction that's oh, written as realism. I just heard about that the other day. I almost texted you. I'm definitely going to read that. It's, I, I'm only about... It just we won the Pulitzer, right? Yeah, I'm about a third of the way through it, and it's it's really good so far. It's sort of like a short story collection, kind of. But yeah. There are these kind did of it win the Pulitzer, or did he win the Pulitzer previously? I just saw that you know that sticker or whatever. Oh, I can't remember if he. I think he won it for this. I okay. think if not, he was definitely nominated. But okay. I can't remember. Um, but yeah, it's, well, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a it's a novel about trees. I've read. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's sort of from the viewpoint of. The trees, yeah. kind of. Um, but uh, let's it, we maybe we should have a a, 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 a diversion book. in anthropo sentences. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to look into it, but but yeah, I, I would highly recommend it. Um, it. But it's an example of of what I would call climate fiction written from or written in the genre of a kind of realist novel, in the sense that nothing magical or you know super technological it's not speculative so far a lot of the stories actually take place in the past um, or they take place like start in the past and then take place over generations because again like, trees like a realist novel might yeah, yeah. Um, but it just kind of made me think because Snowpiercer is definitely that kind of dystopian view um, whereas uh, Ocha sort of it's, I, it's, I don't know. It's, it's stylized and exaggerated, but it's still recognizable yeah, as a yeah. world. And yeah. really, the only thing is the, the existence of the super pigs is like the, the strange thing. Like the technological advance is a genetic biological advance, which is mm-hmm. interesting enough in itself. Um, and, you know, there's a whole another. We could have gotten into a bunch of stuff about genetic engineering and growing meat in petri dishes and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. Um, but you know, maybe we'll get into that at some other point. Um, but I think our, our kind of verdict on Bong Joon Ho is unlike Clint Eastwood, he fucking rolls, and you should watch his movies. <laughs> yeah, like you said, I had not seen these, and I just had heard of them, and had, they had been recommended to me strongly, and I was, I was very, uh, very impressed, and I. I'm going to watch both of those movies again. I guarantee it. I really look forward Unless to watching, uh, watching his new one. I think will be uh, really good. Well, one of the Palme d'Or. It can't be bad. Yeah. Um, or Palme d'Or. I never know how to pronounce that because I'm bad at French. Um, but yeah, that wraps it up for, for old Bong here. Uh, so next week we're going to be talking about the oldest film that we've covered to date. Um our first Earth film, of the nation. <laughs> our uh, our first film from the 20th century. Yeah. Weirdly enough, uh, so from 1999, we're going to be talking about October Sky. So Jill and Hall, three weeks in a row. Or, well, I guess th- not in a row. But yeah, three weeks. Three weeks. Um, playing Homer Hickam in this story of uh, Rocket Boys. Rocket Boys, a story from Colwood, West Virginia. Um, so talking about so we'll be hanging, capitalism. hanging with Chris Cooper. Yeah, that and, was the foreshadowing. Yeah, that was that was the my my near slip earlier in the episode. Um, talking about that, and um, I think a lot of themes or things that we talked about with Interstellar might come back. I think you're right. Um, so that's what we're going to be doing next week. So follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets, as always available on SoundCloud, Spotify. 
uh, iTunes. Don't we have an Instagram now? Oh yeah, we have an Instagram now. Um, Anthropocene's pod or podcast. I forget which one it is. <laughs> uh, on Instagram, uh, we have one picture, one post so far. Um, it's a dick pic. Yeah, well, they're all going to be just different. <laughs> I just take different stills from the films and just Photoshop. Yeah. Not so, mine, but someone's. Oh, wait, <laughs> Um, the dog wing from Take Shelter that we were talking about. I photoshopped <laughs> yeah. that into all the pictures. Uh, um, so yeah, October Sky. Next See week. You. They've got no bullets! They've got no bullets!